everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Beach Shack Podcast. I am your host Tyler Buckingham and I want to welcome you to the Beach Shack. This is the show in the American Shoreline Podcast Network that focuses on coastal real estate and ownership. Of course I have to point out that I am not an expert or thought leader in uh, coastal real estate or ownership unlike most of our ASPN hosts who are thought leaders and experts, I am not, which is why I am honored to have on someone who is Don Scanlon. Welcome to the Beat Shack. Thank you. It's my, it's my pleasure to be here. Don, I just I want to thank you so much. Uh, you're a, a treasure uh, of my home community of Ojai, where you've lived for 25 years, uh, or more maybe, possibly. Uh, but Don, Don is an expert in... Uh, real estate. He has 25 years of experience uh, in the acquisition, development, and sale of commercial properties uh, in his role as an independent real estate investor. Uh, he has a diverse portfolio of commercial and recreational properties located throughout the uh, western United States. Uh, he also has experience in banking, brokerage, and consulting in both the real estate and oil industries. Uh, he's got a degree from uh, the University of California. Is that right, Don? That's right. <laughs> go Bears, go. And yeah. uh, 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 my sister uh, also went to Berkeley. Uh, and let's see, you've got a master's degree in uh, petroleum geology. So uh, Don is an expert in many things, and we're, we're grateful to have him on the Beach Shack today. Um, I very much look forward to our conversation, Don, but first, uh, let's have a word from our sponsors. Our first sponsor today is uh, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association National Conference. Uh, this conference is fast approaching. You need to get there. Go to asbpa.gov. This conference begins on October 30th and runs through Friday, November 2nd. This is the preeminent coastal conference in the United States of America. Uh, ASPN will be there. We will be podcasting from the conference uh, and would love to meet you there. Uh, be sure to get there, pay the fee, and see you in Galveston. Our second sponsor today is Dune Doctors. Dune Doctors does dune restoration and dune restoration consulting. If you have a beach house or a coastal property anywhere from Florida to the Texas coast, that entire Gulf coastline, Dune Doctors is your source for dune restoration, uh, vegetation, consultation. These guys get it done. Go to www.dunedoctors.com to learn more. All right, Don, now that we've gotten the business out of the way, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, Don, uh, I, I have to say it's it's just awesome to have you here. Tell me a little bit about your beach house. 
Well, the current beach house is the third one that we've had. It's um, they've all been located in a uh, an area called Solomar Beach, which is about 25 miles south of Santa Barbara and about three miles north of Ventura. And uh, uh, we've had uh, over 87 years of family history in that area and three different houses. The current one is, uh, we're very proud of it. It's uh, not a mansion by any way or shape, but um, it's a Cape Cod style house, one of the few in the whole area out here. Uh, my mother and father were big collectors of early American antiques. And when I was very little, they would uh, go to the East and go through the antique stores and bring stuff home. On one of those trips, my mother saw this house and uh, on Cape Cod and fell in love with it. Uh, and so she was able to uh, get the owners to give her the, some dimensions. And lo and behold, she came back uh, to California and she and my father built it in 1946. Wow. So she actually, the floor plan and design is modeled directly after a uh, East Coast house. Exactly. This is a classic Cape Cod salt box, they call them. Huh. And it's, it just fits the the uh, shoreline environment so well that uh, so many people have remarked that they just love the look of the house uh, next to the beach. And so we're very proud of it. Absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit about... So you've got this Cape Cod-style house there on beautiful Solomar Beach. Uh, this beach is south of... Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with the Rincon... Uh, portion of the California coastline. It is south of Santa Barbara, north of the city of Ventura, and uh, uh, just a beautiful stretch of, of beach backed by the coastal range bluffs. Uh, the, the Pacific Coast Highway runs right through there. It's just a, it's a totally picturesque, beautiful place. Uh, Don, tell me, tell me, uh, about some of your uh, favorite memories there. You have a lifetime of memories out at your house. Uh, regale us with, with a couple of your favorites. Well, I guess my favorite is favorite period was uh, right after this third house was built in 1946. I was a, a teenager at that time, and uh, there were a lot of wonderful families down there and so we we got to spend all summer at the beach and uh, uh, not only with all the swimming and and uh, surfing that we did but there, we would get together and have bonfires and have grunion hunts and uh, it was just a, a really wonderful time I have some fabulous memories from that period but uh, but the the uh, the, the other two houses that we had, the first one was built back in 1931. That was the beginning of our family's history at the beach. My father built a very primitive small house. It was a single wall shack, uh, had uh, no electricity and, and uh, just an outhouse for sanitation. And we had to truck in water. Of course, I wasn't around at that time. But uh, it was so early in the uh, 
in the history of Solomar that my father used to tell me about. They had to be careful about walking down the beach too far because prohibition was still going on. And uh, the, the, the bootleggers would come into the embayment there and dump off their bootleg and then it would float up on the beach and and other gangsters, I guess, would come and pick it up. And wow. uh, you had to be very careful, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> about going down there and trying to get yourself a drink or something. Not not quite the uh, the same uh, sunset walk on the beach that uh, so many people think of today when they think of taking a walk on the Rincon. Uh, exactly. You got rum rudders out there, you know, different era. Yeah. Now. Uh, <laughs> One of the things, Don, that I so so let's continue here. So the first house, nineteen thirty-one, uh, very primitive. Uh, I understand that it was the fifth house built um, on in the Solomar colony, and I mean I've seen some of the photographs of this era, and um, it truly. Uh, I mean, you can tell that it is the same beach, but. Uh, there are very clear differences. Uh, the houses are back in the dunes, yeah. um, and there is no seawall, which uh, I believe the the wall was built all the way back, all the way in the fifties. Correct. So, uh, very different time in the thirties, uh, and uh, just just as you said, just a much more primitive existence on the beach. Yeah. The. Uh... The actual shoreline, because we've had such a long history there, the shoreline, uh, we've been able to see the changes in it uh, over that period of time. When we first arrived down there, the uh, the earliest houses, which pre preceded ours by maybe a year or two, um, they had the ice plant, which is a, a very hardy plant that does well in a saltwater environment. Yeah. That the masses of ice plant growing on the bluffs in uh, front of their houses, and that was essentially the only uh, protection they needed. Uh, but at that time, there was a, a very strong source of sand coming down the coast, and I, I would say, uh, as much as uh, humanly possible, the beach was kind of in equilibrium at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but then as there was more and more development took place, particularly things like the big yacht harbor that was built up in uh, Santa Barbara, which is, is a huge dam to the sand that's moving down the coast, uh, really began to uh, starve the beaches to the south for sand. And we begin to see the... Uh, tides undercutting the ice plant and uh, bluffs being uh, eroded. And at that time, uh, people began to put up the, uh, the primitive breakwaters and, and wooden, wooden uh, uh, fences to try to stop this. And uh, that period worked for a while, but as the erosion continued, uh, we finally, uh, in the, uh, I think probably the 60s or 70s, had to go to bringing in rocks from down, from up in the mountains and have big heavy equipment come in and put that on the beach. And uh, that's pretty much stabilized the erosion at the present time. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure how long that's going to last either. Uh, 
depending on the quality of the of the of the wall that, that they put up. So yeah, it's it's. I mean, and it is not a skimpy wall. Uh, this is a thick, uh, reinforced concrete wall. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm. You know, it's it's interesting. You you're kind of talking about the history of the uh, arm, the construction of the armament on the shoreline, and um, I don't know when the most recent. Uh, improvements have been made to that wall, but it is not skimpy by any means. Um, you know, one of the things that I want to uh, talk to you about, Don, is how uh, your family would use uh, the cottage back in the early days. I mean, um, obviously it was primitive. It wasn't a place where you would live full time, right? It was uh, a place to go maybe on the weekends? Yeah. Well, actually, all summer. But what, the way it uh, happened, it was a beautiful beach, and uh, as with, as the uh, agricultural community began to grow uh, inland, 20, 25 miles inland, uh, more and more families uh, lived in that area. And uh, in the 30s, there was no way to air condition a house, and so the what happened, the colony was really founded by uh, a whole group of farmers that lived in the eastern part of the county. And they would come out there and build very modest homes and send their families out there for all summer to stay cool. And that is really, in essence, how the whole colony began. And that was, goes back to the very early 30s. And uh, from that, it's just grown and grown and now i think there's in the solomar colony there's 75 or 80 homes at this at the present time and some of them are uh mansions and uh but then there are still a few of the original ones mm -hmm. that uh, were single walled now the the very inexpensive home that my dad first built they only they kept that for only a year or two and then they built a second home that was much nicer, but still uh, not what you would consider a, 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 a you know a modern uh, mo modern style home. But the uh, after then when World War II broke out, uh, that was uh, December seventh, nineteen forty one. Everybody be, or many people became very concerned about living at the beach, uh, and of course about ninety days after. Pearl Harbor, a Japanese submarine surfaced in the Santa Barbara Channel out in front of our house and steamed up the coast and started shelling an oil tank farm in, uh, in Goleta, which is just outside of Santa Barbara. And, um, of course, many felt that there was going to be a mainland invasion follow-up to the attack in Pearl Harbor. So there was a lot of anxiety over that. And uh, my, uh, my mother was, uh, was, was a bit of a worrywart, and she convinced my father that we should sell the house before the Japanese arrived. <laughs> so so we, we, were, we were without a house from uh, about 1942 to about 1945 when we when we won the war, and we, at that time they decided they loved Solomar so so much that they wanted to go back down there, and that was uh, 
the time that they bought, uh, bought their, or actually leased the final lot and built a Cape Cod house on it. So, uh, and that's basically from then on it's memories that I had because I was a teenager about that time. We have 31 millimeter movies that go all the way back to the 30s, which are kind of fun to watch too. They're a little grainy and jumpy, but uh, you can really see, we actually have pictures of what the interface between the sand and the houses looked like back in the, in the, in the 30s. And, uh, so, uh, I mean, it's an incredible, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a book, uh, authored by one of your neighbors out there, uh, Dr. Hart, William L. Hart, uh, resident, uh, uh, and, you know, I, I'm looking at a, a photograph of your, of that third house here in, in, uh, I guess built in 1946 and Don, it is beautiful. Uh, and I see you in the upstairs window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We used to do crazy things. We would go up, we had mounted a, uh, a light on top of the house and attached to a Morse code key. Uh -huh. And we would get up there when the ships were going up and down the Santa Barbara Harbor, we would try to get them to talk to us in Morse code and, uh, of course, nobody ever paid any attention to us. Well, you know, yeah, it's well, it's it's one of the interesting things about that that period of time is uh, in the lead up to World War Two. And then ultimately, after uh, the December attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, is that uh, California had oil infrastructure that needed to be protected. And uh, one of the interesting stories you mentioned to me previously is uh, having Coast Guardmen manning a machine gun, uh, what, in your, just right there, right in front of your place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, that was, it was in front of where we built the house in 46, but of course those guys were there in 42 and 43. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, a basically a, machine gun uh, emplacement with lots of uh, sandbags and it was uh, manned by, I'm not sure exactly who, whether it was a Navy or Coast Guard or National Guard or whatever, but they were out there with their machine guns looking for anything that would come ashore there. And then about a mile down the coast at, a, at an area which is now called Emma Woods State Beach, there uh, still to this day you can see the massive cement gun emplacements where they had some really heavy artillery that they had put down there. And I don't think very many people that go to the camp out at Emma Wood State Beach anymore recognize what those big cement pads are all about, but that's what they were. And so it was a scary time, and my father was involved in running a refinery inland and uh, we, of course, we had air raids and all of those kinds of things. It was a unique time it was. Uh, to be growing up, for sure. It so. was, and and uh, you know, obviously, one of the uh, the great resources, Don, and having uh, you on our first show on this podcast, the Beach Shack, is uh, 
having someone on with such uh, a long history and deep understanding of the region uh, that you uh, own coastal property in. Now, your family hails from where before California? Well, my father was from uh, Indiana, and my mother was from New York. They met in Texas. <laughs> and uh, so he's a self-taught organic chemist and uh, worked for a company called Texaco. Mm -hmm. And they owned, a, they owned a small refinery out here, and they asked him if he would come and run it, and that was in 1925. Uh, and so... Uh, that's why uh, we're out here and all of our relatives are in the East. So I yeah. would like to say one thing about the, the conditions along the beach. Most people don't realize how, um, how the sand moves throughout the year. Uh, there's a very strong current down, down the coast current. It flows from north to south and carries the sand along the beach. And so any obstructions that are built um, that dam up the flow of the sand coming down the beach all along the coast of California tends to starve the areas to the south. And, uh, uh, and, and not only that, but in the wintertime, uh, the, uh, the, the heavy storms will take the sand out and, and store it two or three hundred yards offshore and then in the summertime the smaller waves bring it back in again so the beach itself is very uh, uh very changing totally. and so it's an incredibly dynamic place and uh, it is yes uh one of the interesting things um about this stretch of beach is what don just mentioned is that there's a there's a winter beach and a summer beach and yeah uh uh, in the winter time, it's not you know the the tide pools uh, are exposed. Um, the uh, you there's tremendous uh, the, the tide swing is higher. The the lows are lower. The the highs are higher. And in the summertime, it's just more moderate. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to quickly uh, give our listeners a little bit of background um, on the region. Um, it's, it's, I think it's just worth pointing out that uh, before Western contact uh, on the Rincon shoreline, uh, for millennia, many thousands of Chumash Indian, uh, Indians lived uh, throughout this region of California between San Luis Obispo and Malibu. And um, really uh, had a th you know, thriving existence. Um, uh, Don, you mentioned that there, were, there are some really early uh, human artifacts, actually, that have been uh, discovered that are of the Chumash people. Yes. Um, directly uh, westerly from Solomar Beach, there's a series of islands called the Santa Barbara Channel Islands, and we we see three of them from our house there, uh, anywhere from 12 to 20 miles out there. And the uh, oldest evidence of human life in the United States 
has been found on one of those islands out there. I think it was uh, a, close to 11,000 years old. And uh, wow. they, they think there's a possibility that that was one of the avenues for the settlement of North America as the, the primitive people came down the coast uh, all the way through from Alaska, Oregon, Washington. And uh, they were able to sustain themselves by living off of this seaweed and vegetation that they could find and, and the, <clears throat> of course, the sea life that they were able to harvest too. And so the Channel Islands might have been just a stop-off point uh, for these people as they continued further south. And uh, it, it's a fascinating area. There's also another interesting species out there. The, uh, they, they've found a, uh, a species of, of a miniature or pygmy mammoth uh, because the, the, the geologically, the, uh, the shoreline in this area has been so dynamic over the recent geologic history that uh, in the uh, about 11 or 12,000 years ago, the, um, the shoreline was much further out than it is now because there was so much more of the ocean that was involved in the ice cap. And if you go back even before that, the Channel Islands were almost connected to the mountain ranges that come out of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And apparent, apparently what happened, some mammoths swam across a small channel and got into the Channel Islands and uh, where there were hardly any predators, so they thrived there. Uh, but then as the Ice Age ended and the water began to rise again, it cut them off. And so for... Uh, thousands of years, this species of pygmy elephant, which is a pygmy mammoth, which is not found anywhere else in the United States, uh, was able to survive out there. Yeah, so, they, you know, it's it, the the Channel Islands, which are uh, fortunately protected now uh, and are part of the National Park Service, with the exception of uh, Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles. Uh, and I believe San Nicolas Island, which is a naval facility, but uh, the the northern uh, islands are protected and uh, part of the national park system. It's a phenomenal place to visit. And um, Don, what you're talking about uh, is so cool. When you're out there, uh, you see uh, they call they call these islands California's Galapagos. Uh, the uh, many of the animals that exist and plants that exist there now have mutated and evolved to exhibit unique qualities that are indicative of uh, island specialization. So the flowers have gotten bigger, you know, just across the, the channel, just some 10 miles away. There are related species, but on say Santa Cruz Island or Catalina or uh, excuse me uh, Anacapa Island there are uh, unique um, animals that are not found anywhere else and plants that are not found anywhere else on earth Um, in addition uh, those islands are critical uh, habitat for many of our shorebirds which uh, nest out there um, you know 
many, many shorebirds are ground nesting. And um, as uh, Western uh, non-native animals kind of moved throughout uh, North America, many of these shorebirds needed to move to islands where they would not have to worry about being predated on. Um, and so the Channel Islands are a tremendous nursery. And boy, I just cannot recommend more highly uh, to our listeners, if you have a chance to get out there and and just hike around, spend a day, bring a, a if you're into birding or photography, um, scuba diving, it's just fishing. I could go on. It's just a tremendous place to recreate and uh, enjoy the beauty of that, of, of the California coastline. Yes, it definitely is. The, uh, another thing that's kind of unique about uh, the beach setting uh, at Solomar and, and from Santa Barbara South is that we have a lot of uh, native oil seeps that are, gonna, that are on the beach and beneath the, the water offshore. And uh, uh, this has been known for uh, centuries that, that this was going on. Uh, a lot of people attribute it to the drilling islands that are out there now, but there's very little that's released from the current drilling islands. But uh, it is true that you can walk on the beach and a guitar on your on your uh, foot pretty easily. The, uh, mm-hmm. the of course the Indian the Indians recognized this early on, and uh, there's some a particularly large group of Sikhs on the beach at a little town called Carpinteria, which is just south of Santa Barbara and north of us about 10 miles. And the reason that's called Carpinteria is that, that that's a that's what the Spanish people, when they migrated through this area, called it because the natives were engaged in boat building and uh, they would use the tar from these seats to caulk their canoes, and that would then give them access to the Channel Islands, and they can go back and forth in these in these uh, wooden canoes. And uh, the uh, of course that has led in modern days to uh, the oil industry looking carefully at this. Um, it's uh, the the Solomar Beach property originally was all owned by one large uh, cattle ranch family. Uh, And when my father first arrived down there, uh, they just leased these lots. And uh, and it was a kind of a loose arrangement. I think the lease payments were like $5 a year, some ridiculous ridiculous amount because nobody had put any great value on those the beach and the sand dunes, uh, which I find here, fascinating. You know, it's one of the fascinating transformations that you've seen in your lifetime, and I mean, I've even yeah. seen in my lifetime. And we'll we'll come back to that. But your geez, five dollars—it's incredible. <laughs> the uh, uh, but uh, as the as the colony began to grow and more and more houses were built and people began to get permanent dwellings there. Uh, there began there were some problems between neighbors and so forth in this family that 
owned all of this land. They have thousands of acres and many oil wells just east of us. Uh, they began to get fed up with the people at Saltmar. So they uh, decided that they were going to sell this land to somebody. And so, and of course, everybody in Saltmar, which was on leased land, they didn't want to move their house. And so they teamed together, formed a trust, and made an offer to buy the land. And so in 1972, the, all of the uh, the tenants in Solomar were able to buy their individual houses and, uh, and individual lots. And uh, the the I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what what they uh, asked my father to pay, uh, but it was uh, so uh, it's minuscule by current standards. But I can remember my father saying to me in 1972. Uh, son, I'll never get my money out, but I don't want to move this house, so wow. I'm going to pay them their price. So, it, was a, it was the best move he ever made. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I, uh, looks like the community of Solomar came out on top when they decided to band together and uh, acquire that land. Yeah. Um, and then can you take me through... Uh, uh, how it was then parceled out and uh, had that already happened or did that then happen at that point in 1972? No, that's a really interesting question. It was a, it was a difficult thing to do because the lots were laid out in a very haphazard fashion when it was a uh, leasehold. Um, but when these, these people wanted to sell this land, they didn't want to have to deal with everybody. And so, the uh, colony did a, a clever thing. They formed a trust, and everybody joined the trust. And then the tr trust, um, bought, bought, uh, they bought the entire property in one piece, and then they hired a surveyor to come down and survey all the lots and then uh, sell proportionately. Each person there surveyed lot after the fact so it was kind of a two-stage prods a project and it, uh, it worked really well because they the sellers didn't want to put up with having that many buyers and they have to go through the surveying and all of that sort of and stuff so just to give our just to give the listeners an idea of how how much of, this is a, a a relatively dense uh coastal development area it's about a mile a little more than a mile long um, and I understand it's about 40 acres. Is that, uh, does that stack up with your knowledge? <laughs> Probably so. The, one of the fortunate things that we have is that the dwellings, by and large, are all lined up on the beachfront. But then we have about 10 or 15 acres behind that that is vacant. And, uh, and that gives us a separation from uh, old PCH, which used to be the main highway north and south and in that in that vacant acreage we have tennis courts and playgrounds for kids and meeting areas and uh, so it's it's really worked out well from time to time there have been uh, people that have lived there that wanted to develop the back part but but it's uh, not been terribly popular over the years that idea and I hope it never does get developed because it it really helps make the place what it is yeah absolutely uh, having that little bit of extra space is, is yeah. unique uh, as you know uh, 
my family's beach house is just up the way on the Faria uh, colony, and we're not as we're not so fortunate to have that uh, little bit of space. And I'll tell you, it's special. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at this point, Don, I'm I want to uh, transition the conversation um, and start talking to you a little bit about uh, the. Uh, your coastal property and uh, whether or not you have any experience renting it. Um, what you, uh, you mentioned earlier that you were uh, considering pursuing that in the future and um, how you might be, how might you, how you might go about doing that. Obviously we live in an era of uh, short term rentals uh, using Airbnb and home away and VRBO, etc. And those uh, mobile apps, and with with Los Angeles only really an hour and a half uh, down the 101, um, there is a large market of people who will uh, pay to rent uh, beach houses and recreate with their families and loved ones and friends. Um, and of course, the the Rincon Shoreline is a, just a great place to do that. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, your uh, history with that and and your approach to short-term renting. Well, uh, we have never uh, rented it except on very unusual circumstances. Uh, we've never rented the place. We've had a, a few weddings there. But um, I think that uh, um, currently our thinking is that the house stands vacant most of the time. And we don't think that's right. We think that others should be able to enjoy it like we enjoy it. We have children and grandchildren, but they, all of us together, do not use it. Uh, incidentally, I own this with my brother, uh, and uh, we had inherited it from our father, of course. And um, so um, there's just minimal use at the present time. And so we are thinking very seriously now about doing that. Uh, Solomar has a two-week minimum for uh, any short-term rentals. And uh, there is an individual, uh, in fact, that resides over near your property in Faria that does this kind of thing. He's, he does it in a very professional way, a very careful way, and he's now handling I think five other properties in Solomar. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking very seriously about doing this uh, in the near future so that we can get some people in there to, uh, to enjoy it like we've been able to enjoy it. And we, we just hope it can be managed in a way that's not intrusive to the neighbors because um, we would be having people come in uh, on a short-term basis and taking um, occupancy next to people that have lived there for years. And uh, you have to be very careful about that thing so that absolutely uh, with controlling noise and, and trespassing and all of those kinds of things. And so we're feeling our way into that at the present time. I think we will be probably renting it at, at uh, Thanksgiving uh, and possibly at Christmas because we uh, – our family typically did not go down there during those holidays. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I think that they're very well 
could have some family in there at that time. You know, Don, uh, one, of, one of the questions I want to circle back to is uh, that you just touched on is this idea of permanent residency. Um, does the Solomar community have a, a good deal of permanent residence? I know that it's, it's kind of an odd thing, but uh, it's, it's an important characteristic of a coastal community. Yes, I think it has primarily uh, permanent residence. And the the people that lease there are definitely in the minority. And I think of the the uh, short-term rentals, I think there's not more than four or five out of like 75 or 80 homes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, driver on the American shoreline. What, what I have observed certainly over the past uh, several years is that with the polar proliferation of uh, short-term rental uh, online companies it has just simply become so easy for property owners to take advantage of this system. And like you said, a lot of people uh, might not spend, might not live at their beach house full time. So this is a way to make a little extra money and uh, fill a guest book full of memories that uh, people are truly grateful for, and uh, you know, I can certainly say with with my family's beach house that we have always short term rented. Um, that's one of the real joys is flipping through the guest book and realizing how many people uh, just had you know life once lifetime quality uh, experiences on our shoreline, and and it it's great to share that. Yes. Uh, tech, I absolutely agree with that. So, well, Don, that's uh, that's great. I I I uh, want to circle back now uh, and talk about uh, a final subject matter that I think is just so important. We have you on this podcast because you are an expert in real estate. You have a uh, broad portfolio of investments and. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how you see uh, the coastal real estate market uh, moving. Obviously, um, you have a property on Solomar, but I'd, I'm also curious to learn about your thoughts about Ventura more broadly, um, which, of course, is a city with uh, a, a beach in front of it, but uh, I think has economically has is undergoing an economic transformation kind of before our eyes. And I would just love to get some of your thoughts on uh, coastal real estate from your uh, expertise in that field. Well, as you know, the, the uh, appreciation of the coastal properties has been incredible over the years. Um, and so to that, that in that aspect, it's been wonderful, but it's um, a complex investment, uh, particularly in the era of global warming. Uh, I sometimes wonder about that myself when I see the estimates of where the ocean's going to be in uh, in 2050 or 2100. Uh, it, it is a little scary. And I guess at some point, the public will be more aware of what is potentially could happen. Um, so that's an issue. Uh, maintenance of properties at the 
at the coastline is always difficult. You have to paint frequently, and uh, it's more more difficult to maintain the property. And, and, and everything's and, rusting. I mean, yeah, yeah. your light yeah, fixtures are falling apart. You know, there's yeah. just, your deck is in some state of disrepair. I mean, there is always. Uh, I yeah. mean, this is true. With, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, it's true with all properties. But boy, is the is the time sped up on the beach. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, if it's just a complex investment and someone needs to really do their homework in order to uh, to, to get involved in that, uh, unless they have money to burn. Um, you know, there's another issue that if they are talking about buying bear land, uh, the because of the global warming issues and the California Coastal Commission, it's becoming more and more difficult to try to build anything. In fact, there's even been some threatens that uh, if you're that people that have early homes down there wanted to renovate them and upgrade them, they may not be able to be allowed to do that. That's not the rule yet, but mm-hmm. it's it's being discussed, and uh, so. It's as a, I, I just really can't emphasize enough that it's a risky environment. It's uh, you know, but there, there there's other ways to do it. In Ventura property or Ventura proper, there are less expensive areas that have been that are quite close to the beach that are reasonably affordable, and uh, uh, those I would say would be less risky than buying a piece of property, particularly a single-family residence, right on the strand. Um, and then, of course, there's the condominiums, which is which are nice too. You can, and those are perhaps easier to do short-term short-term rentals on. And uh, so, it's a. Uh, I would say you can't go wrong with real estate in California, but. Then there's the global warming, and there's the coastal commission, and yeah. and there's and who knows where the economy's going. Yeah. It's just a very complex subject, and I I don't have the easy answer for that one. <laughs> well, I think that uh, you look into your crystal ball, but I'll tell you, you're exactly right. The um, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that coastal beach fronting property, in particular. Um, is a risky proposition. Um, those early beach houses that uh, your father built uh, were, I'm sure in his mind, he understood that there was a likelihood that they might be destroyed in a storm. Um, but, but they weren't built to uh, survive anything. They were actually built modestly, and uh, if, if there was damage, you'd repair it. Um, we live in a different regulatory climate now. Uh, obviously, uh, we have witnessed over your lifetime, you have witnessed a, a tremendous transformation along that shoreline from uh, batten board, uh, beach shacks, to mega mansions worth millions of dollars. Uh, and it really, it, I mean, it's, it's a sight to behold, but I'll tell you, Don, it is, it's a beautiful area. And, uh, I'll, I, one of these days I've got to get out there. We've got to have a glass of wine and, and enjoy the beach. <laughs>
but we'll sit out in the front patio and watch the sunset over the Channel Islands and, and uh, figure it all out. <laughs> Absolutely. Solve the world's problems. Well, listen, Don, I want to thank you very much for uh, being my first guest on the Beach Shack podcast. And I want to thank all of the listeners. Uh, thank you for uh, giving this podcast a listen. Uh, we are proud to be on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. This is the place to learn about the American Shoreline uh, from all of the different prep, uh, perspectives that involve the coastal industry, from uh, local government and federal policy to coastal engineering and science to tourism and hospitality, and yes, including coastal real estate. So this is your home for that. Uh, I am your host, Tyler Buckingham, signing off. Thank you.